Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. It's good to see everybody today. Thank you for being here. I will express an appreciation to Evan for filling in for me the last two weeks. It uh, certainly made a time away more relaxing than to be away trying to relax and working on something to present the pretty much the instance you got back. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. We are beginning a new series of studies on Wednesday night, starting this Wednesday. We want to invite everybody to join the class either here or remotely over Zoom. The study is going to be on world religions, and I hope to do it in ways maybe that we haven't studied a couple of world religions before. We're going to start with Judaism. We may think we know a lot about Judaism. After all, Jesus was a Jew. And we talk about the Old Testament all the time. That's where the Jewish people were. But Judaism today, in some ways, is, is a bit different. So we're going to try to let the religions speak for themselves. We'll look at what the religions teach. We'll look at what they practice, how they are organized. And we'll do that with Judaism and Islam between now and the end of the year. And we're not going to be setting up these world religions on Wednesday nights in order to smack them, in order to say, well, here's what they believe and here's why it's wrong. They believe this and here's why it's wrong. We're going to let them speak for themselves so that we can understand what our religious neighbors think and believe and better be in a position to talk with them, to discuss things with them. Each study will end with a Wednesday night lesson about how do I talk to a Jewish friend? If I have an opportunity, what can I say to a Jewish friend? What can I say to a Muslim friend? We'll do that between now and the end of the year. So please consider joining us if you can on Wednesday nights. Now before we get into our lesson, I do want us to take a, a moment here to go to God in prayer again and focus on a couple of specific people that I think uh, we need to take before our Father. So if you would, uh, bow with me and let's pray. Father, uh, as we have said already this morning, we are so thankful for this beautiful day. We are thankful for the gift of life. We are thankful for the gift of your Son that has made us all brothers and sisters. Thank you for loving us, Father. We want to bring before your throne a couple of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, who need uh, your care, who need our help and care. Uh, we want you to bless Father Phil McGovern. He has been struggling with some health-related issues, and we love Phil, and Phil is such a, an important part of our family here at Lindsley Avenue. So please, Father, bless him, give him strength and health, and help us to be an encouragement to him and a help to him. And Father, we are also very aware of Lolo and Elizabeth and Amanda and Antoinette and these, these wonderful young ladies who have come into our family here. We ask you to bless them, keep them safe from the viruses that are out there, that you would bless them, help them to recover so they can be back again with us soon. Bless all of us, Father. Help us to stay focused on you and focus, focus on loving our neighbors and help us to always, always remember how much you love us. It's through your son we pray. This morning, I want us to talk about Jesus in prophecy. It's prophecy when it's got a C on the end of it, and that's something that has been put forward, whether spoken or written. But when someone is actually saying something that's predicting the future, it's prophesied with an S instead of
instead of the C. I have to catch myself when I'm trying to type it up. Sometimes it's uh, that S or a C. A prophecy is something that's already been put out there, and to prophesy is when you are saying it or writing it down, usually in the first place. So I want to talk about Jesus in prophecy. The Old Testament is full of passage after passage, verse after verse, where the writers through the Spirit of God made statements about the coming Messiah, made statements about Jesus when he was going to be uh, here on the earth that formed a great deal of the preaching of the early church. When Paul would go into synagogues and was speaking to Jewish people in those synagogues, he would start with the Old Testament, all they had, they didn't call it the Old Testament at the time, and would use passage after passage after passage pointing out how it spoke about the coming of Jesus. Well, now that we have the writings of Paul and the writings of the evangelists about the life of Jesus, we don't spend nearly as much time in Old Testament, the Testament and the writings that that first century church had, and we don't look usually as much about the prophecies, other than a few of them perhaps, about the coming Messiah. But I want us to do a little bit of that today. We'll look at several passages that are on the handout sheet that uh, you can pick up if you don't have one over here at the table at the entrance. And look at the passage and then look at places where it was noted as fulfilled or where we can tell it was fulfilled. So what is a prophecy? The noun prophecy uh, describes a prediction of the future made under divine inspiration a good dictionary definition, or a revelation of or from God. Making a prophecy is the verb. The act of making a prophecy is to prophesy with the S in it. Of the prophecies written in the Bible about the events that should have taken place by now, every one of them has been fulfilled without fail, 100% accuracy. There are still some prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, and so we await those to come at some point in the future. Uh, that's a statement in terms of the accuracy of the 100% fulfillment that really cannot be truthfully made about any other sacred writings from other religions. I think that's important because the Bible says that God will give us a Savior providing a way for us to go be with God. And some of these, uh, since the prophecies were 100% accurate, we know that it's going to happen. We will go home to be with God through the work that Jesus accomplished here on the earth. What is a messianic prophecy? The Old Testament has some prophecies about, think about the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming captivity, and all sorts of other things. But some of the prophecies, some of the statements in the Bible were about the Messiah itself. Uh, the Old Testament books in the Bible, written roughly over a thousand year period, contained many prophecies about an anointed one, a chosen one from God. That's the Hebrew word that Messiah comes from. In Greek, that word is Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, really and truly the chosen one from God, sent to be a savior, we call him who was named Jesus. So the Messiah would deliver or save the Jewish people, really all peoples, and bring them to be with God. It also said that the Messiah would save all the other people in the world through the blessings Abraham's people would receive. 
For this reason, people who are not Jewish need to learn about the Messiah too, because the Messiah came to save them, all of us, as well. So let's take a look at some of the prophecies. The first one, going way back, I want to bring to our attention, is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God speaking to Adam and Eve after they had decided to do what they wanted to do instead of what God had told them to do, have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then tried to hide. First of all, all the way back to the beginning of the world, you can't hide from God. Nothing you do that's in violation of what God wants you to do, nothing you do that's wrong can be hidden. So why do we keep trying to do that so many thousands of years later? God sees and knows all. Here's what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, you and this woman uh, will hate each other, speaking to Adam and Eve and the snake, the devil in the garden. The snake, the devil, and this woman will hate each other. Your descendants and hers will always be enemies. One of hers will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. God pronounces his punishment on Adam and Eve, all sorts of things. The woman was going to give birth in pain. Adam would have to work with the sweat of his brow and among thistles and thorns to bring forth fruit and, and uh, vegetables and food from the earth. But there's also this interesting, I think, general hatred. Everybody has their snakes. Now, I don't know. Maybe if I asked you everybody here to raise your hand, how many of you really like snakes or have a snake as a pet? There might be somebody. Matt, do you have pets? There are snakes. Good, good. I, I didn't think you did. That's why I wanted to ask you. But I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry, but when I have run across people that have pet snakes, I've even seen a couple of people that will go around town and have a snake crawling around their head. I think that's a bit strange <laughs> because I want to take the snake off of them and kill it. <laughs> I, I mean, it's illegal to kill snakes in Tennessee. I'm sorry, but that's a law I will find a hard time not violating if a snake manages to come close to my house. I'm going to kill the thing, and I'll apologize later. I hate snakes, and most people hate snakes. I know snakes kill mice and rats and all these other things. I mean, I know they're good. If snakes disappeared from the earth, we'd be in a rough spot. But that doesn't mean they have to come on my house near me. Come near my family. I'm going to kill the thing. I think that goes back to that distrust. Humanity collectively has had snakes going all the way back to when the devil decided to speak through a snake and encourage Adam and Eve to do what they wanted to do instead of what God wanted them to do. So when you think about it, this general pronouncement of doom upon the devil coming through a descendant of Adam and Eve is fulfilled at the cross. Jesus really and truly settled the battle between the devil encouraging humanity to do what it wanted to do, sin and rebel against God, at the cross, with the work he did at the cross. So I would go and say one of the places you can see a, a statement that generally fulfills that is in 1 John chapter 3. We read, he that commits sin is of the devil. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve did what they wanted to do, when they sinned by doing something God said, don't do this, they were operating under the suggestion and the uh, encouragement of the devil. True today. When we hate one another, when we do something mean or evil against one another, we are operating under the suggestion 
and encouragement of the devil. Notice what he says about the devil. The devil sins from the beginning. Well, with the devil being in the Garden of Eden, it sure seems, right? Not too many talking snakes going around any other kind of encouragement. Certainly not encouraging God's people to do what God has said don't do. The devil operating through the snake, the devil sins from the beginning. He was sinning all the way back in the beginning. For this purpose, what purpose? To destroy the works of the devil, the suggestions of the devil leading people to sin, to give us an opportunity to get out of sin once we have done what the devil has suggested by giving in to what we want to do. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, became visible, became apparent, became flesh and dwelt among us that he might destroy the works of the devil. The devil has no hope at this point. I don't know why he keeps trying. Because the devil's faith is sealed through the work of Jesus. Our opportunity is in front of all of us to go home and live with God rather than be doomed because we all at some point have chosen to do what the devil wanted to do. So this first of all prophecies, if you will, about the future outcome that one of Adam and Eve's descendants, Jesus, would strike you on the head or crush you on the head would destroy the works of the devil. And that happened after Christ. Later on in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Let's talk about the background. This is Jacob speaking as Jacob is dying at the very end of the book of Genesis. And he, here he prophesies several things. First, that the tribe of Judah would rule among all of the other brothers of, uh, of Judah, all the other sons of Jacob. This prophecy that the tribe of Judah would rule is fulfilled by King David. David is of the tribe of Judah, and that is when the kingdom, the ruling power in the people of Israel was placed in the tribe of Judah. Also, that Shiloh would be of Judah's seed. Shiloh is this idea of a ruler that brings peace, right? A ruler that brings peace. His seed, Judah's seed, promised, promised seed in whom the earth would be blessed, would come from Judah, the fulfillment of the promise that had been made to Abraham. And so in this situation then, dying Jacob at a great distance, roughly 1800, 17, 1800 years before Jesus came, saw Jesus' day, saw the coming of the Messiah, and it was his comfort and support as Jacob is done. And then after the coming of that scepter into the tribe of Judah, the ruling that came, uh, the, the ruling ability that came into the tribe of Judah, it would continue in some manner until Shiloh came, then it would be taken away. So let's talk about that a little bit. This promise that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came is fulfilled somewhere around 11 AD of all things. Why 11 AD? Well, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Sanhedrin of Israel, the ruling council of Israel, that followed in that long line of power resting in a group of people generally from the tribe of Judah. 
They lost the right to judge their own people because the Roman Empire took away their ability for capital punishment. You remember when Jesus is put on trial, uh, they bring Jesus before the Romans because they're trying to tell Pilate, we can't put him to death, which our law would suggest has to happen. You've taken away our ability for capital punishment. Capital punishment, as, as you know, controversial as it is in our world today, really and truly is often seen as whether you really have the power to judge your people. The federal government is granted that ability and that really is saying we really are the ultimate authority here because we have the power of life and death. The Romans had the power of life and death. The symbol that the Romans carried were a bundle of rods, right, with an ax head in it. Meaning that the bundle of rods is what they used to give bodily punishment. Think of a whooping, but like with a baseball bat, not exactly something anybody wants to go through. But that they also had the ability to take the life of somebody that violated the Roman law. That's what the ax head represented. The Jewish people had that ability for capital punishment throughout all their history until it was taken away by the Romans in 11 AD. So at this point, the Jews were no longer really ruling themselves. They thought they were, but they always had to defer to the Romans because they no longer had the power for capital punishment. Number three, let's move to Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all that you desire of the Lord your God, and the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own brethren and will put my words, God speaking, in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This background, what God has promised Moses at Mount Sinai, is promised to the people in God's name that there would come a prophet great above all other prophets. This prophet that Moses speaks was viewed as a, a kind of an ultimate prophet. Greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah we were talking about in class earlier today. There would come this prophet greater among all the prophets by whom God would make himself known and his will to the children of men more fully and clearly than ever before. Moses speaking roughly again around AD 1514, I'm sorry, BC 1500, 1400, a long time before Jesus comes, says, God's going to send you someone, wait for it, because he's going to speak exactly what God wants of you. And if you don't listen to him, God's going to require it from you. You're, you're in trouble. God will take it into account. And no, you didn't pay attention to that great prophet that I'm going to be sending. When is that fulfilled? Jesus himself claims the fulfillment of this one in John 5, 46. He says, if you believe what Moses said, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. Well, when did Moses write about me? Right there in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is making a specific claim to be that prophet that God was going to send, that God, the prophet whom God would put his words in his mouth, and the prophet from whom words would be delivered that we needed to accept. So Jesus is, in fact, that prophet, another Messianic prophet, this time from Moses. Here we have Isaiah 7, 14. 
This one is one we probably have heard before. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In verses 10 through 14 of Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. He's speaking to King Ahaz. And God offers him a sign to prove to him, to show him that predictions he has made before in the book of Isaiah are really going to come to true, going to come to pass. Ahaz says, no, 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 no. I, I don't want any sign. And really, I don't want to hear these predictions. Don't be talking to me about this. I don't want it. God says the sign is going to come anyway. A sign in general of the Lord's goodwill toward the house of David and to Israel. God has not yet given up on his people at this point in their history. They are not forsaken by God, however great the present danger and distress may be. Uh, of their nation, their family, the Messiah is coming. And they cannot be destroyed while that blessing is still coming. There's always a remnant of God's people because remember, Abraham had been promised that from his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Adam and Eve had been promised that from Adam and Eve's son, the future Messiah was going to come who would destroy the works of the devil. Moses also had promised that from their own brothers and sisters, a man was going to come who would be the prophet to speak the words God put in his mouth. Israel cannot be destroyed, the people of Israel, because that promise of the Messiah is still coming. It is fulfilled, Matthew chapter 1, when we read about the birth of Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Chosen One of God, was on this wise, in this manner. When as his mother Mary was espoused, engaged, but more than that, to Joseph, before they came together, before they were husband and wife, before they were sharing a house and a bed together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream because he's like, oh, this really can't go forward, and said, Joseph, you son of David, do not fear to take unto you Mary to be your wife, for that was which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It's not from some misbehavior, from some sin. And then we are told that all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. What? That there would be a virgin who would conceive. And that virgin who had never been with a man was Mary, Jesus' mother. So that is another prophecy this time here in Isaiah 7. Number 5 from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now let me say right now, no one really knows what Ephrathah means. It's a word that no one ever wants to see. I didn't do this to you this morning, MJ. No one wants to see this word because for one thing it's hard to pronounce and we really don't know what it means exactly. But you, O Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This prophet that God was going to send, he would speak his words that Moses talked about, this prophet that had been spoken of in the book of Genesis was going to come from Bethlehem. Going to come from Bethlehem, Micah makes in this prophecy. Micah shows how low the house of David was going to be brought because it is really in trouble at this point in the history of God's people. God through Micah gives a wonderful prediction of the Messiah and his kingdom. 
The covenant's going to be established. The honors of the house of David were going to be revived and restored and to encourage God's people not to give up because it's not over, no matter how tough things look at the moment. Fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 7, and also over in Matthew 2. In Luke 2, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And she, Mary, brought forth her first son in Bethlehem. The chosen one, the Messiah, that prophet that God was going to send is born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said was going to occur. Then in Matthew 2, another uh, variation of that same event is discussed. When he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, was going to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, the chief priests and the rulers of the people knew that Micah had said that about the house of David and that ruler to come from Bethlehem. Isaiah 11, this is what MJ read for us earlier. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, of the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Back in chapter 9, 6, we had read in Isaiah, if you go back a couple of pages, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Evan's doing a great job not breaking into that song right now because I can't read this without thinking of a song using these words, right? We have already been told that a child was coming. What child? The child born in Bethlehem. From who? Joseph and Mary. What is that child? Jesus. They all tie together. And then here in Isaiah chapter 9, God intended all these verses to be a comfort to his people. Without knowing the history of God's people back there in the past, these prophecies don't mean nearly as much because again, in Isaiah, God's people, the people of Israel are really being stressed out. They have not been following God and they're being attacked on all sides. Fulfilled, again, Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 22. We read this a moment ago. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost, and Joseph, her husband, talking about her husband Joseph, and then skipping on a couple of verses, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. Joseph, thou son of David. The Messiah came forth from the tribe of David, just like said here in Isaiah chapter 11, 1, coming forth out of the stem of Jesse, the, the Family of Jesse, Jesse family is who David comes from. Long after that, there will come the Messiah, the chosen one, out of the descent of the line of Jesse. Even when it seems all almost forgotten, coming out of that will be the ruler of the people of God. Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. A prophecy about the appearing of a forerunner for the Messiah, the king who was to come. 
the, uh, Isaiah had foretold as the preparing of the way of the Lord, this forerunner was going to be coming. The words of Malachi confirmed those of Isaiah. These words are a direct answer to the demand that are scoffers wondering where God is back in Malachi chapter 2. We look back in Malachi chapter 2. Where is the God of judgment? People were saying. The answer, here he is, just at the door. The long-expected Messiah is ready to appear. Watch for it because he's coming. Watch for it because he's coming. When is this fulfilled? Look at Matthew 30. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness in Judea. Remember, it was going to be out in the wilderness. And saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John, the forerunner of Jesus, again a fulfillment of, watch for it, because that prophet is coming. Jeremiah 31, 15. I'm trying to speed up a little bit. Hopefully you're getting the impression we can do this all day because the Old Testament is full of these prophecies all pointing at the change that was coming that God would not forget his people. Hold on right here for this one. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. What's going on here? Well, this one's a little harder to think about, but this sad lamentation mothers were making for the loss of their children in captivity happened near Ramah, because there is where Nebuzaradan, try that word a few times, Nebuzaradan, had the general rendezvous, the gathering together of the captives in Jeremiah chapter 40. Rachel here is said to weep for her children. What's going on? Well, remember the captivity? You remember those young men that were taken that we read about in the book of Daniel? These young men are carted away from their homeland and taken over to Babylon. The way the Babylonians put down the spirit of people they took captive was to remove them from their homeland, especially the young people. A group of people that loses their 8-year-olds, their 12-year-olds, their 15-year-olds has a hard time having hope for the future. Really, truly, it's so good to see the young people here with us this morning. We are better when you were here than when you're not. Imagine Nashville losing all of the people who were perhaps 5 through 15. They're just not here anymore. How many mothers would be crying? How many grandmothers, grandparents would be so down and depressed. You would not really recover from that. And so this morning in Ramah is where all of the, the roundup of all of these young people were held and then carted off. I don't know if you've seen Schindler's List. It's a hard movie to watch. But there's one scene in there I always think about when I think of this prophecy. They, they get all the mothers to in this concentration camp to come over this way. And while the Nazis are doing that, they gather all the children and put them on a truck. And the mothers then hear the truck start up and they start running toward the truck. And the truck, the kids are waving at their moms being driven off to be put to death. And the moms are just screaming because they know what's happening. They know they're never going to see those little kids again. Awesome. It's what awesome. happened here in Israel's past in the book of Jeremiah. Rachel 
is said here to be weeping for her children as a general mother of the people of Israel because she is so sad at the loss of her children. The inhabitants of Ramah were crying out for such a lamentation that they thought it may even resurrect Rachel. Maybe Rachel's going to come up out of the grave and weep with them because their children were not with them. They really didn't know that they would ever see them. That's fulfilled, by the way, Rachel's tomb is in Ramah. That's why she's thought of as kind of the mother of that city. Rachel is buried in Ramah. Rachel is buried in the location where the Babylonians gathered all those children together and took them away. When you look at Matthew 2, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and slew, killed all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof. Notice it's not just Bethlehem proper, all around Bethlehem. Notice that? I've really not paid attention to that. From Bethlehem and all the coasts there around, from two years old and under, according to the time in which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then it was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So the statement back in Jeremiah applied to those mothers who had seen their children carted off to Babylon, and in another way it's fulfilled right here for 500 years plus later. Mothers crying for their children put to death in and around Bethlehem and Rome. Fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy is powerful evidence that validates the credibility of the Old Testament. It's very important to know that's real. It really happened. And that inspiration, that prediction that cannot come from human wisdom. I mean, if some of us got together and tried to make predictions, you see these sometimes in New Year's in the newspapers, People making predictions of what's going to happen in the next year. Imagine 500 years from now. Give up. People can't predict the weather two weeks from now, much less something 500 years from now. You can't do it. The Old Testament is full of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy related to Jesus and a lot of other things too. It came from God. Jesus is unique in that his life was prophesied in detail. Used and given by prophets centuries before he was born. It was the evidence Paul was using to convince Jewish people to leave the synagogue and to follow Jesus. It was so effective, the Jewish leaders of the synagogues got really upset at Paul and would beat him up, drag him before the rulers because he was taking so many people out of the synagogue. Powerful evidence indeed. The word became flesh and welcome prophesied so many times in advance, he came and lived among us as a man while also being divine. He lived and dwelt among us, but he also died here among us because he gave his life for you. There's a TV show that's popular right now. It's called The Chosen. You may have heard of it. If not, uh, I will encourage you to watch it. There's some things in there we can always talk about. But there's one episode in particular that I got called off guard. And it was the episode where they were making up some things a little bit about the woman at the well of Samaria in John 4. They had the character playing Jesus talking to her. And in speaking to her, she's like, eventually she recognizes his, who he seems to be. And she's like, why are you here? Why are you talking to me? I'm a sinful woman. Please, why are you here? 
Jesus comes forward and says, I came for you. He did. He came for you. And you. And you. He came for every single one of us. Why? I really don't know. We're told it's because he loves us. I don't understand that. So, he gave his life for you. He gave his life for me. Can I give my life for you? That's really the question I want you to be thinking about this morning as we stand.